the title I suggested, The Lotus in the Maya, uh, and that's from a quotation that I'll be mentioning uh, in a bit. Um, so, the Indian reception of Tajika astrology. But I want to start by speaking a bit generally on uh, India and the historiography of astrology. Because the history of astrology is a fairly small field, academically speaking. Uh, but it has attracted a number of excellent scholars since the um, late 19th century. But while sources in Greek and Latin and Arabic have been painstakingly examined, and still are, um, in order to expand and improve our knowledge and understanding of the development of astrology, there is a vast body of relevant Sanskrit literature that remains, for the most part, untouched and unknown. Uh, and we may ask ourselves why that is the case. I think there are several reasons. Uh, one contributing factor is undoubtedly the tendency of Indologists, particularly in the early history of the discipline, but still today to some extent, uh, to focus either on the most ancient strata of Indian literary culture, that is the Vedic corpus and so on, or in its most refined philosophical output. Because astrology was understood by the early Indologists to be mere outdated superstition. Um, the, its intrinsic value didn't seem to justify the considerable application needed to master its technical details. Uh, so from from an endological point of view, that's probably part of the of the reason this aspect of, of Sanskrit learning has been neglected. <clears throat> but an even more important reason, I think, for the continued neglect of Sanskrit material may be the false dichotomy that still persists between uh, the astrology of South Asia and the so-called Western uh, astrological tradition. This means that any historians interested in studying the development of astrology learn Greek or Latin or Arabic or all three, but very rarely Sanskrit. And for that reason it serves to be pointed out, I think, that once horoscopic astrology um, had been, and that's a technical term, um, there are different opinions on how to define astrology. Horoscopic astrology is, is a, means astrology that uses the horoscopos or the ascendant, the rising sign, for making individual predictions. So horoscopic astrology was conceived in Hellenistic Egypt probably around the second century BCE. But almost as soon as it had been conceived, using elements derived from Mesopotamia, it then migrated eastward almost immediately and developed in somewhat different directions in the uh, Levant, in Persia and in India until Arabic scholarship during the Islamic Golden Age tried to gather up the various strands and weave them into a unified system, which was the system that eventually reached Europe. <clears throat> the, the westward spread of Greek astrology into Europe had been checked by the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. 
so that when astrology eventually re-entered the Latin West during the late Middle Ages, it was a discipline wholly dependent on Arabic, Persian, and to some extent Indian sources, uh, none of whom could, of course, be called Western. Uh, well, the Arabic ones were Western compared to the Indian ones, but they weren't Western in the modern sense of the word. And I would go so far as to say that Western astrology in any meaningful sense of the term did not exist prior to the late Renaissance. That is when this body of knowledge that had been handed down from Oriental sources began to be reshaped in a series of deliberate, if misinformed, attempts at de-Arabization. Basically, the Renaissance authors rediscovered the work of Ptolemy, Claudius Ptolemy, and believed it to be representative of classical Greek astrology, which it wasn't. So all the things that they interpreted as Arabic accretions, they then tried to get rid of, but most of them were actually Greek to begin with. <clears throat> now, nowhere in the world has horoscopic astrology enjoyed such a long unbroken tradition as in the Indian subcontinent. European astrologers in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance struggled to negotiate and maintain um, a compromise with the church as to the role of astrology and the permissibility of astrology, only to see their art crumble then in the early modern period with the collapse of the Aristotelian worldview which by then astrology had allied itself with. It's not necessarily tied up with Aristotelianism, but it happened to be in, in uh, medieval Europe. <clears throat> by contrast, the Indian astrologers appear from the earliest times to have adapted seamlessly to uh, the religious and philosophical outlooks of mainstream society. Uh, most importantly to the, the doctrine of karma. And as a result, the astrology that is practiced in contemporary India, um, with the exception of occasional modern borrowings from the West or sometimes from uh, China and so on, is typically perceived by its practitioners to be fully Indian in origin as well as in character. However, despite this perception, Traditional Indian astrology can be seen to consist of three distinct historical strata. The earliest stratum is the uh, pre-Hellenistic astral divination that dates back at least to the late Vedic period, say 1000 to 500 BCE, um, which is based largely on the phases of the moon with the sun and on the moon traversing the 27 or 28 nakshatras, asterisms. Uh, one for each day of a sidereal lunar month. And these factors uh, were used for determining the proper times for sacrifices and other rituals, but also eventually for personal divination. And we can see uh, traces of this, not least in Buddhist sources, like the Shardula Karanavadana, which in some places at least takes a, a dim view of, of these divinatory practices. Uh, now, some of these indigenous elements, of course, we all recognize them from 
uh, the Indian calendars, the Panchangas, which still note the, the Titi and Nakshatra and so on. Uh, some of these elements also survived in later Indian astrology, horoscopic astrology. Um, the asterisms or nakshatras, for instance, were normalized as 27 equal divisions of the ecliptic, that is the apparent path of the sun, rather than the path of the moon. Um, but the use of the ecliptic itself and all the principal elements of horoscopic astrology belong to the second and most important stratum of astrology in India, which is the astrological law that was transmitted from the Hellenistic world uh, into India at some point in the early centuries of the Common Era. Uh, in many places, including some articles written by myself, uh, there's a fairly precise dating uh, based on, on um, ideas of David Pingris, which have now been exploded, uh, or convincingly refuted, I should say. So, um, more of that in a bit. Um, I mentioned the principal elements of horoscopic astrology, and I won't get too technical, but I'll just mention briefly uh, that they include, for instance, the 12 sign zodiac. That, of course, is something we're all familiar with, I think. The 12 sign zodiac. Uh, perhaps a little less familiar are the 12 horoscopic places or houses, beginning with a rising sign, horoscopos, the ascendant. The use of the five visible planets in addition to the sun and moon. And also the doctrine, this is perhaps the most esoteric sounding to non-experts, the doctrine of planetary interaction through aspect configuration, drishti in Sanskrit, the doctrine that planets in a certain relation to each other can see and therefore influence each other. The art of horoscopy itself is known in Sanskrit by a Greek loanword, hora, uh, which is also used to denote the ascendant, rising sign. And this is only one of several dozens of technical terms that clearly reveal the Hellenistic origins of the system. But despite all this, the memory of this transmission from the Greek-speaking world eventually faded in India and was replaced with a mythologized history that had astrology originating with a number of semi-divine rishis or sages. So that was the second stratum. The third and last stratum, which is actually what this talk is supposed to be about, uh, prior to European influences in the colonial period, of course, uh, <clears throat> this derives from a second wave of astrological transmission from the northwest into India, uh, from the peoples of the Perso-Arabic cultural area, known in Sanskrit as the Tajikas. This is actually an Arabic word, Tayi, denoting a specific Arabic tribe. It was then, then entered Persian as Tazi, meaning Arab. And in Sanskrit, Tajika typically means Persian, so that's how it goes. Um, this transmission was, of course, occasioned by the increased Muslim presence in India. It began in the Saurashtra Peninsula, in uh, right at the tip of uh, present-day Gujarat, about a millennium after the first transmission, so sometime before the 13th century CE. Now, I mentioned the neglect of Sanskrit sources. Uh, 
There is one major exception to that in the history of astrology, or the, the academic study of the history of astrology. Um, and that was, of course, the late David Pingree, who passed away 12 years ago. Uh, most of what the scholarly world today knows of astrology on Indian soil, we know thanks to Professor Pingree. And this includes what little we know about Tajika astrology, which receives, I think, three pages in one of his publications and an additional 12 pages in another publication, mostly dealing with dates and routes of transmission rather than ideas as such. Uh, I've really looked for scholarly sources on Tajika astrology, but the only source I have found prior to Pingree um, is a paper published in 1853 by Albrecht Weber in his Indische Studien, um, which was a pioneering effort, but of course not free of errors. And uh, some of Weber's mistaken Arabic etymologies have actually been passed on to posterity through Monia Williams' Sanskrit-English Dictionary. So they're still there. Um, but despite the great value of David Pingree's groundbreaking contributions, um, he too was wrong in several respects. And again, I won't go into technical details, uh, but I will mention his characterization of Tajika as having, and I quote, a basic Indian core to which are added elements derived from the Arab or Persian texts on which it drew, end quote. That is really understating uh, the case. Um, the, um, the core that in classical or pre-Islamic Indian astrology shares with Tajika is not in itself Indian. Uh, it derives, of course, from the complex of Hellenistic ideas, which both traditions share. Uh, but Tajika also comprises many central doctrines that were present in the Greek-speaking world, but that either never reached India or else didn't survive there, uh, including subdivisions of the zodiac, configurations of the planets, and various technical concepts like planetary sect or planetary joys, and methods of timing predictive, predicted events. If, there's, if there are any closet Jyotisha Pandits here today, or if you're interested in these more technical aspects, I, I do welcome that sort of, of question later on. Um, but as I, I'll try to not to get too technical. In, uh, in present-day India, Tajika astrology is largely synonymous with one particular prognostic technique uh, known as Varshapala, the results of the year. Uh, often referred to in the European literature as the annual or solar revolution, uh, where you cast a new horoscope as each new year of life begins. And that's a procedure that did not exist in pre-Islamic Indian astrology. Tajika began to thrive in India during a period of comparative openness to external influences, from the 13th to the 16th centuries, approximately. Sheldon Pollock has noted that after this period, a struggle began in India between tradition and modernity in Sanskrit culture. Uh, that, Pollock says, bears a striking re resemblance to the Querelle des Anciens et des Modernes uh, in Europe. And that resulted in India, resulted in a surge of Hindu neo-traditionalism from the 17th century onwards. Uh, 
But despite the general attitude of openness prior to this uh, time, Tajika doctrine was not incorporated into the established forms of astrology in India. Rather, it formed a separate school alongside it. Uh, and we may, of course, imagine that a new take on a knowledge system that was supposed to have originated with the Vedic sages would have met with some sales resistance. But again, it is interesting to note that the need for Tajika apologetics seems to have increased rather than decreased uh, from the late 16th, early 17th century. So the, the later authors are more, uh, see more conscious of the need to defend their art than the early authors. The evidence of this criticism against Tajika is one-sided. Uh, as far as I've seen, well, in the instances I've seen so far, um, they're all, um, uh, they all appear as the prima facie arguments of the opponent, as the Purva Paksha in Tajika works. Uh, so arguably they're, they're straw men. But the counter-arguments that are employed to refute them are still worth examining. The principal objection against Tajika, not surprisingly, appears to have been that it is impure because it's foreign. It's of foreign origins, Yavanam, Lecha origins. And therefore it's defiling to a Brahmin to study it. And in this connection, in defending Tajika against this accusation, uh, much use is made of the ambiguity of the term Yavana uh, by citing Yavana as a traditional authority on Jyoti Shastra. But there is also the more straightforward defense that is presented, for instance, by Ganesha Daivajna in the 16th century, and that is where I got the title for this, The Lotus and the Maya. Uh, he says that Tajika is acceptable because it works, and that renders its origins irrelevant. Uh, I'll quote him verbatim here. He says, Although this science was created by Brahmin-hating Turks and remains Tartaric, it is still fit to be studied even by the twice-born because the good and evil results pronounced from it are true. In enjoying a lotus, is there any fear of the mire from which it has grown? Or is there any blemish in a jewel brought forth from a serpent's hood? So that's one strategy. Another strategy, which is sometimes combined with the first, is to deny the foreign nature of Tajika. A, a denial to occur is not possible because the vocabulary of Tajika is obviously non-Indian. It's Arabic. Uh, but its foreignness is relegated instead to the status of mere incident by an appeal to mythology. According to this account of the history of Tajika, the originator of the Tajika science is the Hindu sun god himself, who, as a result of a curse uh, pronounced by Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva, uh, had to be born as a Mlecha in the city of Rome. This story is still invoked by some present-day Indian astrologers. Others are perhaps more motivated more by nationalist pride than by concerns over ritual purity, and they forgo the mythology but still insist on an Indian homeland for Tajika astrology. So getting a little closer to the main topic here. Um, still haven't made use of the whiteboard, I will now. Um, if you visit any astrological or 
Sanskrit language bookshop in India and ask for a text on Dajiga, nine times out of ten, I would say, you'll be given some edition rather of the Tajika Nilakanti, um, written by one Nilakanta Daivajnya. <clears throat> the Tajika Nilakanti consists of two semi-independent volumes or tantras and it has been the most popular textbook of Tajika for several centuries. Its author Nilakanta was Jyotisharaja or astrologer royal to the Emperor Akbar. Uh, the work is sometimes published along with a third volume called the Prashna Tantra or Prashna Kaumudi, but I recently, as I recently demonstrated, it, that was not authored by Nilakanta. Um, so Nilakanta had a younger brother named Rama Daivajina, also an astrologer, and Rama had a student named. Balabhadra. In the early 17th century, Balabhadra was court astrologer <coughs> excuse me, to Shah Shuja in Agra. And he undertook to, an ambitious project um, to compile a sort of encyclopedia of Tajika astrology, which he finished in 1629, which was called the Hayanaratna. Balabhadra's perspective as a compiler is synchronic rather than diachronic, but from a modern perspective, this work gives a unique overview <clears throat> of the development of Tajika, the Tajika school, by quoting extensively from authors spanning five centuries. It quotes about three dozen texts. Um, I'm currently preparing a critical edition and annotated translation of this work. And I hope it will go some way towards understanding the development of Tajika. Now, Balabhadra's view of the Tajika tradition, as I said, is, is synchronic, but it's not completely ahistorical. Uh, he does, in fact, distinguish between what he calls the ancient Tajikas, Jirana Tajika, and the new school of Tajika, Navina Tajika Mata. And in this modern school, he includes Nilakanta, his guru's brother. So they were self-consciously modernist in their approach. Uh, an interesting detail here is Balabhadra often quotes another author, roughly con uh, contemporary, uh, slightly older contemporary, um, Yadavasuri, who often, uh, with whom he often disagrees, and he quotes him among other things, as criticizing certain Brahmin authors for, quote, not having understood the tradition of the Yavanas, uh, Yavana Sampradaya. Uh, although this, this author Yadava himself identifies as a Brahmin, 
is still critical of other Brahmin authors. Uh, and his criticism seems to be directed at Nilakantha's school or others holding similar views. But his criticism was in vain. Today, Tajika is more or less the same as uh, the school of Nilakantha. Now, coming on to my, my own work on the Hayanaratna and the various texts, 30-something texts quoted in that text, in that work, uh, it has, of course, led to a number of preliminary conclusions. Uh, many of them concern technical astrological doctrines, so I won't bring them up here. I'm happy, as I said, to answer any questions on them, but um, keeping it non-technical for now, uh, some points that uh, I might mention here are uh, first the um, uh, the source texts, the sources used by the early Sanskrit authors, the Persian or Arabic sources, even Pingri didn't know which, uh, and also uh, the transmission history of Tajika in India, both in the earliest phase and later on. So to begin with the, uh, the sources, Balabhadra actually states quite explicitly that the original Tajika text he says there was one original text that was written in the Persian language, Parasya Bhashaya. And it was then translated into Sanskrit by Brahmin scholars. The foremost of these Brahmins, he says, was a certain Samarasingha. first Brahmin Tajika author, according to Balabhadra. He was, <clears throat> he was the foremost of them, and he is described as anointed to the rank of a sage among authors on Tajika. Tajika kartrasho rishisthana Now this raises, first of all, the question of whether Persian and Arabic were actually, to Balabhadra's mind, two distinct languages. Balabhadra lived and worked in the Persian-speaking milieu of the Mughal court. But there is nothing to suggest that he studied or even had a working knowledge of Arabic. Through Persian, a number of Arabic words would certainly have found their way into his vocabulary, but it is by no means certain that he thought of them as anything other than Persian. In other words, we can't take his... Uh, can't take his statement at face value when he says this text, original text, was written in Persian, the Persian language. The um, identity and authorship of Samarasimha is a somewhat complex question. I'll return to it in a moment. But focusing for now on the question of the source texts, um, a number of texts can actually be identified, and I have identified some of them, from Samarasimha's preserved writings, and it turns out that they were all written in Arabic, and all in the 9th century. So that at least gives us a firm terminus postquem. Samarasimha himself is quite explicit about his source. He says, it is the Guru Tajika Tantra Deepa, or sometimes he abbreviates it and says just the Guru Tantra, the great teaching. 
um, written by Kindi. Kindi or Kindika. Um, so that is his, is his source. Now, who's this Kindi? Pingri believed that the, the Guru Tajika Tantradipa was a Sanskrit work which is now lost and that it was written by an Indian astrologer who would have been known uh, among Arabic writers simply as Al-Hindi, the Indian. And that this word Al-Hindi had then been Sanskritized as Kindi. Apart from the fact that there is no trace whatsoever of this supposed Sanskrit, lost Sanskrit work, is really completely, if it's lost, it's completely lost, utterly, no no references to it anywhere, uh, no quotations. Um, apart from that, there are strong linguistic reasons to doubt that an Arabic Hindi would be Sanskritized as Kindi. Uh, <coughs> there are actually a number of other Arabic terms, beginning with ha, uh, that have been <coughs> Sanskritized in Tajika works, and they're all Sanskritized as beginning with ha, not k. Um, so the suggestion made already in the mid-19th century by Albrecht Weber is much more likely to be correct. He thought that Kindi was, in fact, Jakub ibn Ishaq al-Kindi, the so-called philosopher of the Arabs, who lived 801 to 873, um, and who did author some astrological works. But the really interesting problem here is that the vast majority of uh, Samarasimha's preserved writings seem to have been copied not from Al-Kindi, nor from some unknown Al-Hindi, but from one particular writer named Sahil ibn Bishr, who was a Persian Jew writing in Arabic in the former half of the 9th century. And his name is never mentioned anywhere, as far as I've seen. There's a stray verse here and there that might possibly derive from Al-Kindi, and there are somewhat longer excerpts from a few other Arabic authors, especially Umar ibn al-Farukhan al-Tabri and Abu Bakr al-Hassan ibn al-Khasib, <laughs> both uh, authors who were also translated into Latin, and their works were preserved in, in Latin translation in, in Europe. Uh, but neither of these authors is mentioned either by name. It's all supposed to come from this kindi. Which leads me to suspect that Samarasimha's actual source was a compendium. A compendium of astrological writings, a sort of best of, in Arabic. Which had either been compiled by, by al-Kindi or somehow erroneously attributed to him alone. Uh, and this is not a very far-fetched idea, because we do know that several compendia of this sort existed in the medieval period, both in Arabic and later in Latin. On the matter of the early transmission of Tajika astrology in India, um, we should note that the earliest Sanskrit author on the subject may in fact have been not Samarasimha, but a contemporary of his, um, a Jain scholar named Hema Prabhasuri. 
who wrote a work called the Trilokya Prakasha, which is traditionally dated to 1248. But irrespective of who was first, it is certain that the Jains played an important part in the transmission of uh, Persa-Arabic knowledge systems into India. There were, of course, trade routes between the Persian Gulf uh, and the Arabian Peninsula on the one hand and northwestern India on the other, uh, well established by the time we get Tajik astrology. And a prominent part in these uh, contacts was played by Jain merchants who dominated the areas of finance and coinage in western India at this time. So influential Jain families were the natural allies of the Sultanate in both financial and administrative matters. And by extension, Jain intellectuals became intermediaries between Perso-Arabic and Sanskritic traditions of knowledge. By this mediation of familiar strangers, uh, Islamic astronomy and astrology was then made accessible to the Brahmanic intellectual majority. This prominence of the Jains is particularly interesting because both Samrasingha, who probably lived in the latter half of the 13th century, and the slightly later Tejasingha, sorry about all the names, this is probably the last one, uh, Tejasingha, who lived in the earlier part of the former half of the 14th century, they both identify as belonging to the Pragvata community. Uh, the Pragvata, known today as Porward or Porwal, is a mixed Jain Hindu community. Uh, and its members are typically considered to be Banias, merchants, not Brahmins. In fact, Teja Singha, right at the end of his work, which is called the Daivajnyalankriti, right at the end, he refers to himself as the son of a Shudra, and he begs that his readers will not disregard his work on that account. This, of course, doesn't mean that Samara Singha or Teja Singha were not respectable members of society. They both claim a family connection with a ruling dynasty, the Chaulukya dynasty, in a ministerial capacity. But it does mean that they were not Brahmins. And Balabhadra, of course, who would have read their works, he would, would have known that they were Pragvartas, he would have known that Teja Singha calls himself the son of a Shudra. So when three centuries later he refers to Samrasingha as a Brahmin, a Brahmin author, he was probably engaging in a bit of deliberate whitewashing in order to uphold the Brahmanic claim to a monopoly on astrology. Deja Singha's work is interesting for another reason as well. It is clearly based on the work of Samrasingha, who lived a couple of generations earlier, in the same area, belonging to the same hereditary community, associated with the same ruling dynasty in the same sort of capacity. Yet, towards the end of his book, Teja Singha writes that the subject matter of the book, Tajik Astrology, was, and I quote, verified by my own experience of the meaning taken from books, even without the lineage of a true teacher. In other words, there appears to have been a break in the earliest transmission, the earliest stages of the Indian transmission of Tajika. And this may 
also explain another curious circumstance, which is the fact that there appears to be no real Tajika tradition of genethliology or birth horoscopes proper. There is a tradition of what I mentioned, Varshaphala, casting the casting of annual horoscopes, but not of actually reading a birth horoscope from scratch. So these new techniques were grafted onto the pre-Islamic uh, Indian system of reading a birth chart. Samarasimha seems to have written three major works that now survive only in fragments. At least I'm not aware of any manuscripts or editions. If any of you should ever come across this name <laughs> in something that could be an astrological context, please let me know. Um, I'm not aware, as I said, of any manuscripts or editions of his text. Pingree appears to have been ignorant that they had ever existed. These three works seem to have been, well, one on basic definitions, one on annual horoscopes with predictions for each year of life, and one on what is known as interrogational astrology, Prashna Shastra, that is answering questions by casting a horoscope for the time and place that the client asks the question. And these three were probably the works that Tejasingha had read and that everyone else read. Uh, they were still extant in the 17th century when uh, Balabhadra and others, this is, this is my main author and his main work, when Balabhadra and others cite them. But later they seem to have been eclipsed by the works of Nilakanta. So Samarasingha wrote the old standard work sometime in the 13th century, but Nilakanta's work from the 16th century seems to have, um, as I said, eclipsed it. But Samarasimha also wrote a fourth work that did deal specifically with genethliology, the casting of birth horoscopes. And that work has been preserved, although I believe that some chapters may have been lost. It differs in some way from the earlier ones, and I think that he may have written it later in life. Uh, it's known under several titles. Its original title seems to have been Karma Prakasha, Light on Karma, Light on Actions. Uh, it actually begins with a Mangala Shloka directed at karma, praising and, and, and uh, extolling uh, karma, the principle of karma. Uh, but it's also known as Manushya Jataka, human genethliology, uh, sometimes known as Tajika Tantrasara or Ganaka Bhushana. Uh, as I said, it does deal explicitly with the casting of, casting an interpretation of an astrological nativity. Uh, but it doesn't seem to have had much of a Nachleben, although there is a late commentary from the 18th century. Uh, and even later authors who quote it seem often unaware that it was written by the same Samarasimha who was uh, anointed to the rank of a sage, as they say. After the time of Tejasimha, the uh, further dissemination of Tajika appears to have been slow at first and chiefly confined to the Gujarat area, at least up to the end of the 14th century. There were a couple of works written in the 14th and 15th centuries, but then during the Mughal era, the eastward and southward spread of Tajika gained momentum and 
in the 16th and 17th centuries, Tajika works proliferated. Both Tajika and classic, what we might call classical Indian astrology were typically practiced separately by members of hereditary communities who preserved astrology, like other traditional knowledge systems, as their intellectual property. Uh, Balabhadra himself had mastered both systems. He wrote the Hayanaratna on Tajika. He wrote another encyclopedic work, the Huraratna, on non-Tajika astrology. So he knew both, but he kept them separate. Um, and this has been the uh, the general mode until uh, the end of the 19th century. At that point, Hindu astrology began under Western influence uh, to be popularized and to some extent reformed. Uh, that's the subject for a different lecture. But uh, since that time, it has become more usual for practitioners um, who are typically not descendants of uh, hereditary astrologer families, but they're people who begin, uh, people who belong to to the professional middle class and who practice astrology as an avocation. It has become more usual for them to combine these two styles of astrology, pre-Islamic and Tajika, uh, and to implement elements from each according to their own understanding and, and predilections. Today, Tajika is subsumed under the modern paradigm of Vedic astrology, a term that was, seems to have been coined in the uh, uh, late 1970s or early 1980s in North America. Uh, and its extra-Indian origins are largely forgotten, ignored, or even denied. Was it comprehensible? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.